All right, something useful here. Exodus 23, we are still working through the law, and I'm going to be saying that a bunch of times because the hardest part about talking to a group of people is getting started. So there you go. That's, those are the uncomfortable things that you use to get started, which you want to talk about real fun. Since we've started recording things to post on YouTube and I have to do the editing for them, I've started to realize just how many weird, nervous tics I had at the beginning of a sermon. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, because they've got to be driving you crazy if they drive me crazy on Monday morning. So I'm, I, I try and I can't help myself. So I'm just apologizing in advance. So. Yeah, but it's worse when you have to watch yourself. They used to tell you that. You used to tell me that in seminary. Watch your sermons. No, no. The only thing worse than watching me is having to listen to me. Come on now. <laughs> I sound like that. Well, this is the one advantage though of um, of getting a little bit older and getting some nice throat damage from having laryngitis and various sinus infections. Is my voice is deeper now than it was 15 years ago. And so that makes, me, that makes me feel a little bit better when I hear it. I'm like, oh, okay, I actually don't sound like a woman on the phone. Good deal. No, my entire life until about 25 years old, I would call the bank. What can we help you with, ma'am? Mm. There's that nasally New England kicking in for you, being something useful. There you go. She sounds like a boy. Well, there you go. It doesn't get better, I promise. But if you get sick enough long enough, it doesn't change. So there you go. I just told her she's not a boy, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Exodus 23. As we move through the law, what we are doing again is adjusting your brain. And as we move through this, God starts drilling down deeper and deeper into all the avenues and aspects of your life. The reason he does this is because there are no pockets of your life over which God says, no, 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 you can have that one. I, I don't need that part of your life. It was true, it's true today, and it was true then. So even the ritualistic aspects of Israelite life are governed and covered by the law of God. And yes, nothing has changed. I'm going to tell you something that will annoy a large segment of evangelical Christianity. You, as a Christian, are a part of a religion. It's always in the bottom. It's like, I can't get it. There is nothing harder on the planet to do than silence a phone when it shouldn't be going off. Because suddenly you have 27 thumbs and they all go in the opposite direction. <laughs> You're all right. What, what is that? What just happened? There we go. Are you playing? <laughs> also, like, wait a minute. All right. You are in a... Whoa. Is that loud? Are we still good? Okay, there we go. Like, You're, I can take it if you can. We are in a religion. Yes, your religion is relational in nature, but it is also spiritual in nature, and it is ritualistic in nature. If you think for a second, well, we're evangelical Christians, and we're Baptists. We don't have rituals. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? Sit someplace else. Go ahead. I dare you. Go ahead. Sit someplace else. With the exception of, like, four of you in this room, you are like, here I stand. I can do no other I mean, I have been in Baptist churches where I've specifically asked people to move for a reason. You should see the look that you get. No, this is my seat. It was claimed before the foundation of the earth. It shall be claimed after the foundations of the earth are destroyed. This is where I shall be. We have rituals. If you don't believe me, I'll change the bulletin next week and you'll all go, what did you do that for? Because that's what it's supposed to look like. Where you come in, where you sit, when you stand up, who you talk to are just part of your little rituals. They're not evil in and of themselves. God recognizes this about you and tries to steer them 
and commands them for your good and for his glory. This is important because if God does not take control of your rituals, you will define them by your standards. And you know how that's going to turn out for us? Yeah, exactly. Very not good. So, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about these verses in Exodus 23, so let's read them and make sense of this. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from your labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave as well, as your stranger may refresh themselves. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard, and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe a feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also you shall observe the feast of the harvest, for of the first fruits of your labors, from what you sow in the field. Also the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Okay. A couple of things real quick before we dive right in. We'll rewind to the beginning and then a couple of little notes. Part of the advantage of going through this like this is just that. How many times did you think you had brain whiplash? Like, I'm following along and I'm following along, and where did that idea come from? Now, if you go and sit in a seminary class at pretty much any seminary, Bible college in this country, other than like maybe like 10 or 15 that you could actually name off, you will be told the reason that is the case is because of what we have is the JEDP model. That the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were written by five different groups at five different points of history. And then at some point, they were compiled and arranged by an editor. Yes. And they'll actually tell you that as you read this, you can figure out which is from J and which is from E and which is from P as this goes through because of how they address God, how they address the nation. That's why you get these little whiplash moments. So you have the... Um, the Jehovah group, which you can, you can find because they refer to God as Yahweh. You have the Eloist group because he does not refer to God as Yahweh. He refers to him as Elohim or El whatever. You have the Deuteronomy, Deuteronomistic. You say it! <laughs> which is a secondary law group that went back and compiled things. And then you have the priestly source, which would come from, as you guessed it, the priests. And they all had their little pieces and fragments, and an editor put them together. And that's why you get these little whiplash pieces like we have today. That makes perfect sense if you ignore the testimony of Scripture, and you disallow for God having any hand of it. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. You start everything in life with what we call a priori assumptions. Your first things. Before you even evaluate what happened, you have assumptions about life and living. So, by example... If I drop this, what's going to happen? 
How do you know that? Now, if you live in a naturalistic world, there's a possibility that's not going to happen, right? So remove God from the picture, and life is completely random. If I drop this enough times, eventually it should do what? It should float, or it should go up, or it should go left or right, or it should do something else. See, you don't think in those terms because you just take as an assumption with a theistic worldview that gravity is constant because God has made this universe to function according to his natural laws. So your a priori assumption is that's going to happen every time. You don't have to test everything in life because you have assumptions that you govern them by. I just spun this the wrong way. There we go. That was right the first time. Part of that as a believer should be how you approach Scripture, how you approach your Bible. You want to approach it with the mindset that this is a coherent text because that is the testimony of Scripture. That is the assumption of every writer of Scripture going backwards, and that is the view of both Christ and the apostles as they are empowered by the Spirit and ordained by God to give testimony. So because we follow in that line, we approach this from a unity. The other reason you should do it is because if I give you a book and I can read it to you as one book and it makes sense, should you assume that it's two books? Because it makes sense as one book. Part of the reason why we go through books the way that we do is I want to show you in these that there are units, that they make sense verse by verse, chapter by chapter, idea by, by idea by idea. Say that three times fast. As you go through them, we can do that today, and hopefully we will do that today, to try to get this whiplash out of your brain and also to give you an idea as you're reading how you can do these things so that as you're reading your Bible, you don't you know, turn on the History Channel one day and go, oh, they told me it wasn't true, and I don't have any tools in my toolbox to understand that. Yes, you do. We're going to put them there. Make sense? All that, to, all that to try to explain why we're doing what we're doing and why it's important to do, even in what is basically at this point of Exodus, a, a legal text. A listing of laws and ordinances. They are given in the order that they're given because they build upon one another and they make sense of each other. You ready to dive in? Okay. Verse 10. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. No issues here. That makes perfect sense. This is the pattern of life in this creation. All the way back to Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and what comes next? Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the living thing that moves upon the earth. Part of that is planting crops. You don't just move into an area and hope it produces something you can eat. You do what? You cut down trees that don't give you food. You build a house with it. You plant down trees so you, you plant trees so you get firewood down the line. Other people build houses. You cover the land so you can grow food so that you may live. This is part of the dominion work of humanity, which is why, whether they follow God or not, every human culture going all the way back to the beginning of recorded history does what? Just that. They, they change their environment to suit them. It is innate to humanity because God put it there. Now, that work is defined by God. So does that mean we just go and destroy the land and say, well, God told me I could? The answer is no. We have some guidelines. Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We're going to borrow this idea again in a minute. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
So the understanding of where the Sabbath comes from is the pattern that was established by God. Does God need to take a day off? Did God get to day seven and go, man, I'm just wiped out. I want to go sit out in my chair and chill. No. He's demonstrating a pattern and explaining, giving, just as Paul does talking to Titus about the Corinthians, giving you an example of how you are to live by showing you the proper pattern. So let's continue. On the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Well, we just took the Sabbath of the pattern of the week and expanded it to what? Years. So we follow the same pattern now in years. That's going to make my life difficult, isn't it? Every seven years, I don't get to go plant a new crop. I don't get to harvest my vineyard. I don't get to manage all of these things. All right. This is when I get to pick on your brains. You ready? I'm going to whiplash some of you, and I'm going to look forward to it immensely. What is... You get one word. One word. If you come up with a two-word answer, I will throw things at you. Okay? What is the purpose of the Sabbath? I knew somebody was going to say it. Your first thought is rest. No. No. You're getting warmer, though. Trust. Trust. Faith. It's not about rest. It's about trust. Hebrews 4. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. What is, and we've covered this before, what is Paul talking about in Hebrews? Remember, this is, my, this is the theory that I've just, we're, it's official, we, we've stamped this. Hebrews is written by Timothy, but it's a sermon of Paul, so that's where we're just going with that. What are they getting on about in Hebrews? What is this rest we're entering into? It's in eternity. It's in glorification, the removal of sin. How do we enter into it? By being faithful. Do you enter into rest by doing things? So like when you go home at the end of the day and you flop on your couch, are you actively resting? Be like, oh, yes, I am resting so hard right now. Yes. <laughs> no, you're doing what? Nothing. By definition, a rest is not work. Scripture calls you to long for a rest, but to get there by doing what? Work. work. Sanctification is a work. Remember, in salvation, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So, we have been saved. Big fancy theological term. Justification in the work of Christ. The work that you could not do, that he has done upon your behalf. You have been justified before God. Declared not guilty. You have been saved. You are, that by the way, that's a one-way work. You don't bring anything to that table. God does that. You are being saved. This is sanctification. This is the Holy Spirit working within you, spurring you on, and you working hand-in-hand hand with him. This is an active process. You are being saved. You will be saved. This is glorification. This is the death of all sin. Your sanctification seeks. It is completed. You are perfected. By God, in godliness, according to the work of Christ. That, too, is a monergistic work of God. You don't bring anything to that party. God accomplishes it. Now, for those of you efforting in your sanctification, is it relaxing? 
as you are working actively in your life to kill your sin, you're just like, man, this is so easy. It's like whack-a-mole, but I get like the big hammer. So the one, the one mole pops up, and I have a hammer that covers 27 holes, and I just hit once, and they all die. Is that sanctification in the sinful world? No. It's more like they give you the big giant, you know, mutant mole, and then give you a ball-peen hammer, and you hit it, and it's still standing there. So you hit it again, and you hit it again, and you hit it again. Look, we've talked about this before. Why do we kill? How do we kill our sin? We kill it, and how do we keep, how do we, we keep killing it? Because what is that angry little bugger going to do? He's going to keep coming back until you completely dispatch him and get rid of him. Sin fighting is an active process. It does not feel very much like rest. And yet I'm told to endeavor into a rest with God. Welcome to the point of this here. Matthew chapter 11. What does Jesus tell the crowds? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a good offer, right? You've been yoked by the law, yoked by the Pharisees, yoked by your sin. I want this gone. I want it to be easy. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, I don't really care how light and easy a yoke is. It's still what? It's still a yoke, and I don't care how easy your burden is. It's still what? A burden. But it's a good burden, and it's a good yoke because it is a blessed work. It is the work of sanctification that Christ is offering them. He is offering them a continued work, not a work that they were doing in their sin that accomplishes nothing but bringing wrath and destruction. But he is promising them a holy, sanctified work that accomplishes godliness and peace and security with the ultimate rest being where? In godliness, in eternity. That is what you are being called to. That is what Israel was being called to. Look at a farmer. You ready, Vern? Pick on you a little. Look at a farmer and say, you don't get to plant a crop for a year. And you have to watch the weeds grow. And you have to watch the trees get out of control. You don't get to prune them. You don't get to plant. And you don't even get to pick whatever leftovers grew up after, after last year. Sitting in the house twitching a little. <laughs> And then next year, you get to go back to planting it. What did you just imagine? How much work do you have on that eighth year? Yeah, because i got to go weed, and i got to go pull rocks out, because for some other reason, if you've never seen a field, they just find rocks. They just grow them, and I don't know how they do that, but they do. You just told people that their work just doubled, and they have to do what for their survival? Trust. Because if I don't plant a crop for a year, where's my money coming from? Where's my food coming from? Who's going to look after my vineyards? Who's going to ensure that everything is taken care of? Now, if you're Israel, what's the answer to that? Who's, who's going to ensure that? God is. Remember we talked about this. The, the Sabbath command, the reason why when we went through the Ten Commandments, we made the Sabbath command the hinge, is because it has both vertical and horizontal components. It is primarily a vertical commandment. You are resting, not from your labors, but resting in God. But you also have a horizontal responsibility, how you operate as a community, how you operate as a family. Part of the demonstration is here. What's one of the reasons you let your field lie there? Whatever it produces, is that for you? No. It's for the people that don't have a field, for the people that don't have a vineyard, for the people that aren't taken care of by the regular economic means. Who will ensure their survival? God will. Whose field will he use to do it? <laughs> Yours, which is actually whose? God's. 
his. See, that's the issue. Sabbath living for Israel was supposed to be about surrendered living in faith. Who ensures my family doesn't starve to death on that Sabbath year? Who ensures that my field will still produce something if I don't go weed it and take care of it? Who will ensure that the animals will be okay and that the vineyard will survive and the crops will make it and we won't all die? God will. I have to surrender my ideas. I have to surrender my accomplishments and rest in godliness. Christian, I think we just kind of described what you're called to live day in and day out, aren't we? This is one of the reasons you have seen the de-emphasis in Protestant life on Sabbath keeping. Your Sabbath keeping is supposed to be done every single day. You don't set aside one day to live in faith to God. You set aside every minute of every day to live in faith to God. You rightly orient your labors so that they do not overtake your life. Why? Because your labors are an offering unto God. The Israelite is told, look, go work your tail off six days a week. But you take that seventh day and you dedicate it to God, family, faith, and all of those things. Christian, what are you supposed to be doing every day of your life? Recognizing that some days are going to be better than others and some days you're not going to accomplish it as well. But you're supposed to be living like that every single day. In Christ, you are living a Sabbath in your work. It's a different mindset, isn't it? This is why the application of these things matter. This is why understanding how God's law was supposed to operate from the very beginning, moving forward, makes sense. Because if you don't see the totality, you'll look at this and go, I need a day off. Well, you probably do. I'm not arguing that you don't. But my point is, the day off was never meant for you to sit in your house, put your feet up, and chill. It was meant for you to surrender your desires, your planning, your self-sufficiency, and rest in God's provision. Christian, that's what we're supposed to be every single day. Just in case you didn't catch the memo, God keeps going. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your female slaves, as well as their stranger, may may refresh themselves. All right. We've covered this, right? Did you need to be told this again? Probably not. We just saw it three chapters ago, so why be told again? When you repeat yourself to your children, why? (laughs) You go, I ask myself that every single day. The answer is because you're assuming that they didn't hear something, or the discussion that I have is, I said something, and then they didn't do the exact thing that I said, so I assume they didn't hear all of it, so I repeat it again slower so they hear all of the details. It's that or, you know, completely lose my mind, and I try to avoid doing that on a regular basis. So when God repeats himself, don't just pay attention to the overarching command, but pay attention to what? The details. Do you notice the adoption here? Sabbath living is about what? Faith, trust. To whom should you be imparting these values? Say it loud. To God. To God. No, God has the values. Who should you be imparting them to? The rest. Everyone. Everyone. If God has given you charge of another human being, what should you be doing with them? Teaching them, discipling them, preparing them in godliness. Doesn't matter if they're a dog or a cat or an ox or a servant or a sojourner traveling through the land. We live like this. Why do you live like this? I love that question. Because what does it get me to do? What does it allow me to do? And now get to explain the why. We have now entered into discipleship. 
Go back to Exodus 20 again. Before God gives them the commands, what does he remind them of? I am the Lord your God who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The reason why you get this calling placed on your life, Christian, is he is the Lord our God who brought you out of the land of slavery. You were a slave to sin, serving your master. Ooh, the songs line up today, don't they? But in Christ, what's gone? Oh, come on. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. I was a slave. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was serving the prince of the power of the air. But in Christ, I am not. I am alive and I am free. Therefore, the one who has set me free said, hey, this is the way you should live in my world. That's what I want to do because I've been to the bad place. And you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to ever be back there. And in him, I'm not going back. But I don't even want to walk in that direction. Same reminder is given. This is why discipleship matters. Your worship and discipleship in godliness should be affecting not just you, but those who are around you. Welcome to the examples of Israel's history. Genesis 28. Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He sees the vision of God and the angels, the angels going up and down out of heaven. Wakes up and realizes, oh, because he's got a, a, a not fully formed idea of who God is and what he does. This is where God dwells and enters into the world. What should I do? I better mark this place so that I don't do what? So don't forget about it. Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offering by fire and his portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is, is their inheritance as he promised them. The Levites don't get a land, which means where will the Levites live? Yeah, they get 48 cities, and where are they all spread out through? All the other tribes. Why? No matter how your tribe lives... There is a tribe dedicated to God, offering his sacrifices, offering his prayers, living by faith, trusting in the provision that he gives them. You can't walk anywhere in Israel and not see that's what the cities of the Levites. There's Levites walking around. There's sacrifices being made. There's, there's prayers being given. What should that do for the Israelite? It's a reminder that these people are literally living unto God by his grace every day. What am I supposed to be doing again? The exact same thing. The Levites are a living memorial to who God is and what he calls his people to. You see this in Joshua before they come into the land. Let this be a sign among you that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? This is when they're crossing the Jordan at flood stage and God stops the water. As they're in the midst, they pull up the rocks and they make a, they make a memorial on the other side of the river as they enter into the land. You shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Why do you read your Bible? Yes, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, but it's also what? It's a memorial unto you. Why do we sing songs that remind us of the great works of God? It's a memorial to you. Why do we partake of the supper? We take the bread... In the cup, what are we reminded of? The work that God has done, the work that he has still promised to do. Why do I ramble on like a lunatic every Sunday morning? 
to try to point you back to the history of Israel so that you can see the works of God, to point you to the works of Christ so that you can see the recorded memorial of the works of God so that you can then be encouraged that what he has done, he has what he has promised, he has accomplished, and those things that he has not accomplished, he will be faithful to fulfill because I can see his faithfulness in action. These are memorials unto you. They are how you train your mind. This is what the Shema was all about. Write it on your forehead. Put it on your wrist. Put it on your door frame. Put it on your city gates. Everywhere that you go, everyone that you meet should be a living reminder that I do not live and serve me. But I live for and serve a higher one. My life is not my own. It is in Christ that I live, in Christ that I move and have my being. It is in Christ that I offer my life to. And if you're hiding an area, well, congratulations. You just found your sin. What do you get about the business of doing? Kill it. Kill it. Kill it with fire if need be. <laughs> it's phone day. All right. I think mine's off. I don't know. <laughs> if it goes off, we'll know because I won't be able to get to it quickly. I'm trusting Jan to get there quick. <laughs> I just got to look like, yeah, right. Just throw it at something. Be buying a new phone. Verse 13. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard. Do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard in your mouth. See, this is just that one of those first whiplash things, right? Because you're sitting here following the Sabbath. All right, this is how I live. This is the days that I keep. These are the years that I keep. This is how I'm doing it. Now, avoid idolatry. What? what, what? Where did that come from? What's Sabbath living? What's the purpose of it? It's not rest. It's what? Faith. Faith. Trust. Pick your word. Stick it in your brain. Glue it in there. To avoid faithful living is to live for what? Yourself. When you live for something other than God and you dedicate your life to its service, what do we call that? What kind of sin? I think the big fancy theological term would be idolatry. Whether it's your children, whether it's your job, whether it's you know what you do on the weekends, or whether it's your life in general. You have placed something other than God upon his throne. You have engaged in idolatry. God rightly sees that. Concerning everything which I've said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of the other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Guard yourself to that level with the gods that you know are going to be false worshipped, and you have a fighting chance to deal with the ones you're not paying attention to. Always remember, you're not going to leave here this week. So you're not going to go about your week. And it's, I mean, when was the last time somebody walked up to you on a random Thursday and be like, hey, do you want to go down and offer sacrifice to Molech with me? Like, has that happened to anybody? Hey, we're going to put up in a sheriff hole in the backyard. You want to come? We'll make headdresses, offer sacrifice, dance around. It's going to be awesome. Like, we got pagan sacrifices. I got a goat. You got a, you got a machete handy that we can borrow? Like, has any of these conversations ever happened for you? If they have, run. I don't know who you're hanging out with, but you need to get away from those people, okay? Why? Because that's not the biggest draw of idolatry, because those are the easy ones. We got rid of those faster than we got rid of anything. The harder idolatries are, you know, I got that credit card pretty much paid off. I don't really have the money for this thing, but I think it'd be really fun and useful. You know... I don't have to talk to people. I don't have to, you know, share my faith. I don't have to disciple these folks. They don't really want to hear it. Those are the harder idolatries. Because you know where they start? In your heart and in your head. And who lies to you the most? You do. 
Because you're good at it. You know what buttons to push, you know what strings to pull, and what lies you'll believe. And you use them. Trust me, you will never argue with any other human being more than you argue with you. And if you are arguing with other people more than you argue with you, stop listening to other people and listen to yourself for a little while because part of the reason you're arguing with them is to avoid arguing with you. And you need to have that fight on a regular basis because you need to learn how to tell yourself to be quiet and do what you need to do. That's part of surrendered living, is not believing the lie even when it comes from your own imagination, but walking away from the idolatry of, well, you know, it's okay, there's a bunch of people going in this direction, it can't be that bad. See, when you were a kid, your mother used to look at you and go, well, if everybody else jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge, would you do too? And you were like, probably, if it would annoy you. And then if you had parents like mine, they smacked you, and you were like, I'm sorry! It was Monday, and now it's Thursday, and I don't know what happened. <laughs> Sorry, a little childhood trauma bubbling to the surface there. It'll be all right. I'm okay. <sighs> but what was the point of that silly example? <clears throat> to take what you were doing in a small picture and make it so big and obvious that you couldn't miss it. You need to do that on a regular basis. You're the adult in your brain, and you need to orient your brain in godliness. This is the war. This is the, this is the application of the law. Is it's guiding you through all of these ditches and potholes and bear traps and snares of life so that you recognize them and don't fall into them. Look, it's a lot easier to not step on the bear trap than it is to try to pry it off your leg, right? We can disagree. Given the option, what would you prefer? Yeah. You want to be the one in the zombie film who's fast and saw them coming and, and didn't, you know, oh, what are they doing? Are they going to eat my brain? You know. There's always that one person, you're like, just, just run. Just run. Keep going. Look, you've never watched a horror movie from the 80s? How many times have you watched a bad horror movie and just said the same thing? Run. Like, the, the axe murderer is chasing you like this. I like my chances. Remember, Geico did that commercial. Let's go get in the running car. That would be dumb. Let's hide behind those chainsaws. Yeah, that's every horror movie ever made. You want to be which person in the horror movie? The one who got in the moving car. Well, how do you do that? By recognizing who the villain is and how you get away. How do you do that? By understanding the way that God calls you to live in this world and then doing that. That's what we call sanctification. Walking faithfully so that when sin confronts you, you go, oh, wait a minute. No. See, Christ died to free me from you. Since I am his, I am free from you, so get out of my way. We can do other things. That's sanctified living. And when you recognize that, ah, I'm in a bad spot again, for that too, Christ died. I am free from this, which means I can leave when? Anytime I want. I keep going back to Pilgrim's Progress because uh, John Bunyan, 800 years ago, I said, no, it wasn't 800 years ago, 600 years ago. I gotta get my timelines right. 500 years ago, height. Yeah, when John Bunyan? 15th, 15th, 16th century? Yeah. Yeah, my brain's right. I'm thinking of a song that's 800 years ago. That's a different conversation. Um, John Bunyan does a great job of explaining this because Christian, walking the king's highway to the celestial city, he's walking sanctification. And one of the things he's done, and I can't remember the name, but he gets, uh, he gets abducted by a giant locked in the castle, and he can't get out. You know how he finally figures out if he gets out? He's got the key the whole time. Because what's the example? What traps him there? Sin traps you. In Christ, is sin your master? Are you a slave of your sin? No! Which means in Christ, when can I abandon my sin? Anytime I want. Who has the key? I do. I'm enslaved because I want to be enslaved. 
If you've ever dealt with any type of addiction of any kind, you've talked, to, you've had this conversation with somebody, you're like, when it gets bad enough, you'll want to quit. And until you actually want to quit, you know what you want to do? You won't quit. As long as you still love that thing just a little bit, you'll eventually go back to it. That's why this matters so much. Those are your idols. Those are the things that enslave you. Take care of the big ones. And then you have the energy, the time, and the wisdom to tackle the small ones. It works itself out. You walk away. This is what Jesus is trying to get the, um, the religious leaders in the crowd to do. John 8. Jesus told them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And I know that you are Abraham's descendants, and yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen my father, seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Remember, you're either serving God or an idol. Who's the father of lies? So when you lie, whose, whose ways are you walking in? Whether you lie to your neighbor or whether you lie to yourself. This is why the commandment is given where it's given. It's because this surrendered Sabbath living is about making sure, not just that I take a day off, but that all of my life is casting out sin, darkness, and evil so that I can walk in godliness. It makes sense. So, and yes, I know what time it is. We're on the right track. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. Okay, that's important. Remember, regulation and ritual. What is God building with this people? What are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be a nation of priests, a community of faith. That's why Hebrews 10 continues to build. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Same thing with Israel. Three times a year, you're going to celebrate. You're going to be reminded of who you are, how you got there, and who got you there. And you're going to do it how? Who has a party by themselves? Like, is that not the saddest thing you can imagine? It's like the person sitting there by themselves with a little hat. Yay! And they're just them in a room. Is that a party? If you said yes, you're very weird. No, a party involves what? Other people, lots of dishes that I have to do when you all get out of my house finally, right? No, that's the part nobody else thinks about. That's why I don't have parties. <laughs> it's the stuff I think about. It's like, I gotta clean when they all leave. Did you bring the flamethrower? No, that's not a good option, is it? <laughs> You've had these thoughts. It's okay. A party involves other people, so when we celebrate to worship God as making us as a people, what will that involve? Other people. This is the reason why you're gonna have three national feasts for the nation so that they will come together so they will encourage one another build one another up the New Testament takes that example and says hey this is why you do church where's the one place guaranteed to sit and sit near other Christian people the bus no <laughs> Walmart have you been to Walmart like that's why every once in a while you'll see these stories pop up if you ever pay attention like reason I saw one of these yesterday um what was this Oh, reasons why you should watch the NBA Finals. And I was like, ooh, this ought to be good, because I need, I need a gay reason, because I haven't watched an NBA game in five years. And the guy, the guy was writing, and one of the reasons he gave was because Chris Paul, who's in the NBA Finals, is a Christian. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. No reason for me to watch, but I get it. 
In other words, when I turn on sports, do I expect to watch Christians doing things? No, I expect to watch what? Great athletes doing things. Now, if you tell me they're good, godly people, is that a bonus? Yes. Yes. But let's all be honest for five seconds. If I gave you the Christian Sports League and they all were just okay, and then I gave you the actual Sports League, but they're all really good, which one would you watch? I mean, if I gave you the Christian Football League in the NFL, what would most people actually watch, Christians included? See, you're, you're laughing because you don't want to say what's true, which is you want to watch the good football. That's why nobody watched the Arena Football League and nobody watched the XFL. Because, and that's why nobody watches like Division Three football games on a Thursday night on ESPN 12. Because nobody wants to see bad football. That's why more people go to Bears games than go to, you know, Byron High School games. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> I've yet to see the traffic having to be directed by my house because of the overflow. I've been caught in ball game traffic before and it is not fun. <laughs> yeah. we, we look at the world around us and there are no guaranteed places where we're going to be around other believers. That's why this is important. Because you can look around and see what? It's the one place I'm guaranteed, guaranteed to find at least one other person who's not lying about being here. And I'm not assuming anything about you. I'm just pointing at the law of averages. So, what kind of feast should we celebrate? You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. You'll be reminded, you're ready, this is where I'm going to be a good Baptist today. I have alliteration for you. You are going to have a Passover memorial, because a Passover is their redemption, their salvation. Exodus 12, this day will be a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. How many times have we mentioned, as God's giving these laws, that you should remember the stranger in your land because you were a stranger in Egypt? You shall remember how to treat the slave because you yourselves were slaves in Egypt. You shall set them free because God has set you free. They're all reminders that, hey, you live like this because God has saved you. So they have a Passover memorial. Also, you shall observe the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. You get a promise memorial. I worked hard on these. Come on now. I don't ever do alliteration. This is what we would see in the New Testament as Pentecost. This is the feast of first fruits. This is not the full harvest, but kind of the down payment on the harvest. So when you see the buds form and you see the leaves out and you see the beginnings of the fruit forming, you say what? We're not going to starve this year. Look, look, there's stuff growing. It's going to make it. We have a chance. If you ever planted a garden, you've celebrated that moment. You've rejoiced because you see the plant and they look a little green and then you see the little buds of like tomatoes or whatever and you're like, it's working. I can grow things. Psalm 85. I will hear what the Lord God will say. For he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. What's the reminder there? That those little first fruits are not the crop, but they're a reminder that the crop is coming. A reminder of the bounty that will be the harvest. Christian, this is why we celebrate all the little aspects of life. 
Because every little step we take as we walk in sanctification, every little sin we kill, every little idol we set aside, is a reminder that God is at work, that we are faithfully progressing. This is why you've heard, you've heard me say before, don't look at the water. Don't try to remember the day and how you felt when you came forward. Don't remember the song that was being sung. All of those are meaningless. Look back at your life and the victories that God and you have accomplished. Look at your life 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years if God gives you grace down the road. See where you are today as a Christian versus where you were. And rejoice in that progress. That's your fruit. That's your first fruits. Those are the little things that God has given you to show you that, hey, you can see what you have accomplished. We're going to get there. And when you do, it will be glorious and good and it will be right. That's one of the blessings of being an older Christian. That's why you don't abandon church when you get a certain number of gray hairs. We need the encouragements. I promise you we do. Because let's be honest, there are days when sin feels like it wins. And to see faithful Christians 30, 40 years down the line who have overcome for those decades is an encouragement not just to you but to me to those around me because we can see that by God's grace we can walk this path. We are uplifted. We are strengthened. We are blessed by it. This is why we shouldn't lie and hide about who we are. This is why I joke about my, my uh, childhood and my traumas because you know what? I'm not worried about them. While they have been a part of shaping me, they do not define me. And if you think worse of me because of how I was raised, well, that's a you problem, not a me problem, because God has used all of those things to create the lunatic that you see before you today. <laughs> it is what it is. And I, like I said, I'm okay with it. Why? Because for that too, Christ died. And the baggage that I bear is the baggage that I bear. And the blessings that I bear are the blessings that I have to share by God's grace with the congregation that he has put me with. So I walk and I'm honest and I tell of my failures and I tell of my successes and we rejoice in both of them because I still stand here. And my successes haven't made me who I am and my failures haven't stopped me from being who I am. But God's grace and mercy carried me through. That's what First Fruits is supposed to be about. It's a reminder of the promise that he who began a good work will bring it to the day of completion. Also, the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Provision and protection. Who got you from the first fruit to the harvest? God did. It's a reminder that those little, those little things that he gave you as you walked along, he's going to complete and he's going to bring them to bear fruit. Leviticus 23 expands on them. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live like that when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That was part of reminding that, hey, God saved those people. And we've covered in Exodus, in Exodus, I'm turning into people from Northampton County, oh my goodness. We have a whole group of people in Cameron's home area, but that's how they actually, hey, Exodus. And if I get talking too quick, because I lived there for too long, it starts coming out. Oh wow, that one hurt a little. As we've gone through the people of Exodus, how good are these people? How many times you wanted to reach into your Bible as they walked along the path and, and, and griped with God and complained at Moses and sinned against one another and wanted to strangle them? He preserved those people. 
He redeemed those people. He brought them to this mountain. He gave them this law. He gave them the means of sanctification. He will bring them into the promised land. If he can do it for them, there's good news for me yet. Because if he can save that sinful people, he can save this sinful people. And we can rejoice. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. And here's your summary, because once again, this is going to point you backward and forward. You're going to gather together as a people. You're going to be reminded. When all the men leave, who's doing most of the work? When all the men leave from their appointed duties and looking after flocks and herds and fields, who's protecting the place? God is. It's a reminder. Three times a year, you have to pack up everything that you think makes your home secure. Three times a year, you have to pack up everything you think makes your work accomplished. And you have to leave it. You have to leave it for days at a time and trust that who will provide for it. Numbers chapter 6 is the benediction that Aaron is supposed to give the people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell Aaron and to his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and then I will bless them. Surrendered living, isn't it? Why will you have peace? Because God gave it to you. Why will his countenance favor you? Because he has promised it. Why will you be secure? Because God secures you. Why will you have provision? Because God will provide for you. It is a surrendered living. And that's why these make sense as well. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. It's a little ritual and a little reminder. Remember, in Israel at these festivals, what does leaven represent? I mean, yeast is not evil, but it demonstrates what? That little bit of yeast, when you drop it into your dough, what does it do? It affects the whole thing. That little bit of sin that you let live in your life, what does it do? It corrupts the whole thing. It's not that yeast is evil. It's an example to teach the sons of Israel that their lives need to be diligent. That their surrendered living is not this part over here and this part over there, but that part over there. See, that, that one's mine. God doesn't get that. No. There is no part over your life that God does not look and say, mine. It is all his. He is the redeemer. He is the creator. He is the one upon whom we are dependent. And again, this marks every little bit. You're like, well, I want to leave the fat. I mean, nobody wants to eat that. I'll throw it to the dog in the morning. No. No, you won't. Why not? Because God, come, uh, God exercises that authority and command over how many avenues of your life? All of, them. All of them. Even down to this. So as I worship God, I'm not thinking about what I want to do. I'm thinking about what? What he wants me to do. It's a training for your everyday life that as you enter into it, you live your life how? The way I want to live my life? No, the way that God has commanded me to live my life. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil, I'm sorry, you are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. That's an actually an easy one. That was part of Canaanite ritual worship. As you're going into the land, that's how they would offer their goats. It's kind of like add insult to injury. It's like that old joke where you, you, t- you take the chicken and say, I will kill you and then boil you in the, in the, in the blood of your children. Because you take fried chicken and what do you put it in first before you fry it? 
Before you bread it, you put it in what? Egg wash. Egg wash, yeah. Where, where do eggs come from? Yeah, see the, see the joke? <sighs> come on, guys. I know it. We're almost there. <laughs> That's part of Canaanite worship. You're going, why would you do that? I have no idea. Nor do I really care. But it's a reminder from God to this people that, do you borrow their practices? No. Do you borrow their culinary skills? No. Do you borrow how they build their houses? Maybe. Depends on whether or not they're sinful. Like if they build their house in a certain way so that it points towards the North Star so that we can worship. No, we don't build our houses that way. But if they have a nice way of digging a foundation so the house doesn't fall over, I can take that. That's not an issue. Because God would like me to build a house that doesn't fall over. Because that's a good provision and offering for my family. That's how I live well in this world. This is the point of all of this. As you go about the festivals, if you're Israel, as you go about your daily patterns of life in your Sabbath, as you go about the years of your life slowly over time, they are meant to be built into patterns that train you to not live for you, not live for what you want, but to live for God and what He wants. It's not just worship, it's life. Not some of it, all of it. How you talk to your spouse, how you wave at the neighbor, how you treat other people on the road. All of these things are meant to be how you make an offering to God. You live worship. You don't come do it once a week. And that's what these commands are trying to get about you. They're trying to get you to reorient every aspect of your life in godly manners. So you should have reverence. Philippians 2. Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I live reverently, knowing that God is actually at work. Think about that for a minute. Would you react differently to the troubles in your life when you realize that God is actually at work in them? I think you would. You should have joy. Nehemiah was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribes, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the peoples, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. I had to tell them that because they read of the law, and they all realized that we haven't been keeping the law, which means we are now under what? Judgment. That scares them, and they had to be reminded. All the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law, and then they said to them, Go, eat the fat, drink of the sweets, and portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Christian, what's changed? Whatever you confront, however you confront it, you work out your salvation in fear and trembling with what? Joy that the enemy is defeated. Joy that my salvation is assured. Joy that it is God who is at work in me. And that's why you walk in faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen, for by it, men of old gained approval. Israelites aren't saved because they didn't boil a goat the right way. They're saved because God redeemed them. They will walk faithfully, not because they have some aversions to goat milk, but because they want to honor and serve God more than they do anything else. Christian? Nothing has changed. In order to live surrendered living, in order to fulfill these commands, we have to live faithfully. That means trusting that God actually knows more in my life than I do. That sounds really dumb to say out loud because we know that it's true. 
trusting that he knows what is good for me, knows what is best for me, and that as I walk according to his ways, that my life will go right. It may not always go pleasantly, but it will go rightly. And that is what is supposed to be more important, is understanding that as I have been saved and as I am being saved, no matter what happens between here and the end, that I will be saved. Let's pray.